don't pick a fight. It means not inventing something to get somewhat, something from them. You're not to be malicious or seek to make a profit off of a lie. In other words, we are prohibited from drumming up discord with others. Drumming up discord with others. Don't pick a fight. It's not worth it. And it's a violation of God's word to do so. And harm, and harms not only them, but causes greater confusion and pain in the community around us. Let's continue on. Look at verse 31. Do not envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways. Here we see a shift between good neighbors, excuse me, to one who is very bad. Before we saw neighbors who were living by you securely that we were to do no harm to, but now we see a neighbor who's a violent person. One who will use violence, brutality, and false accusations to get what he wants. Do you know somebody like this? Someone that seems to live completely apart from God. They might be bullies. They might be just very devious and diabolical. It could be your boss. It could be someone that you work with that is trying to stab you in the back to get ahead. You know, someone that's like that. Or maybe someone wants to bring you down, a classmate, whoever it might be. They are plotting you harm to you. I mean, plotting you harm. And they are getting, getting um, more prestige. They seem to be advancing socially. And we sit there and go, how long, oh Lord, how long? It's useless to hold on to our integrity if they are able to advance why can't i and god is saying here don't be don't envy them see and it's interesting here that it has this command do not repeated twice in verse one verse 31 do not envy and do not choose don't think don't try to follow them it's a double command that means it's emphatic that we don't try to follow in our, our violent neighbor's steps See, I I can only think of the numerous mafia and drug dealing types that have huge mansions and nice cars, but we're not to choose to live that kind of life. And and it's not just that. It's other people that are are getting, um, seem to advance off of intrigue and deception. Now, notice the word choose. It means making a careful, well well thought out choice. In spite of the violent person's apparently easy success in his present enjoyable lifestyle, the son, because remember, he's this uh, pro- Solomon is writing as if to a son. The son must keep in view the cruel end to which the Lord will consign him. And the one who mimics any of his ways is his comrade, and as such is under the Lord's curse. Now notice verse 32, that the violent person is also characterized as a devious person and who is an abomination to the Lord. And it, it literally means offensive to one's sensibilities or turn the stomach. It literally turns God's stomach when he sees this. One scholar notes that in the 21 occurrences of the word abomination in Proverbs, it denotes bad moral conduct of a social kind in our interaction with people. And that 12 of these are in the formulation of an abomination to the Lord. He says, what makes certain attitudes and activities abhorrent to God is to be traced back to their hurtful and hostile nature. They intend to inflict harm by deceiving, by humiliating, or by even defrauding another person. Now, what is God saying here? That we are prohibited from desiring the lifestyle of destructive people. Prohibited from desiring the lifestyle of of destructive people. And it's not just those who are violent. It's those who are are completely destructive and and are living their life apart from God. Now, I had this happen, um, (laughs) I mean, illustrated in my life, actually almost a mirror of this passage or completely representative of this passage. When I was a youth pastor, I had a young man on my youth group named Vladimir Hernandez. Vladimir. I had him when he was in seventh and eighth grade. And 
um, through junior high and high school. And, and Vladimir wasn't a frequent attender to youth group, but he would come occasionally. He was a real fun, happy-go-lucky kind of kid, kind of, you know, the kind of uh, kid that got into a little trouble, but enough where he, you thought he was more funny than he was bad. But I remember just seeing and hearing him talk in different settings and, and how I could always tell that he uh, envied the, the kids that are older teenagers around him that were gangbangers. He wanted to be a gangbanger. He dressed like a gangbanger. He carried himself kind of like a gangbanger. And um, I ended up going on to grad school, so I left the, the church and moved to New England for a few years and lost track of Vlad for about four or five years. And then I moved back to the area, and I, the next time that I heard about him was in the most horrible way possible. I see uh, one of my other students post on Facebook his obituary. It was really sad. He was 18 years old, and he had joined a gang. Matter of fact, he'd been convi- he'd convicted of burglary charges and running with his group. But one night, he is sitting on the 6100 block of West George Street, which is just down the block from where I lived when I was in Chicago. And he was sitting there, and another gold car pulls up, pulls off two shots, and drives away. Here he is, this young man. He wanted this life. He got it, but he also got the result of it. You know what did Jesus say? Or what does it say in the scripture? He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. You live that kind of life, you're going to have that life happen back to you. It's a tragic representation of what happens if you choose that life. And that is a, a pretty dramatic illustration of that. But you can see that in other ways. People desiring fame, celebrity, fortune, and they get everything that comes with it. They get heartache and betrayal and erosion of, uh, they don't know who their friends are any longer. I mean, it's no no secret that those who win the lottery end up being some of the most miserable people on the face of the earth. And some people would still say, I'd like an opportunity to be that. You know, that's why I love in the scriptures, it says, bless me not with great riches or with poverty. Because if I become rich, I will forget you, oh God. We don't want to forget God. We are to Seek his face, not to drum up discord or desire the life of destructive people. But let's look again. At, let's look at verse 33 and see what's next. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. The wise will inherit honor, but fools get disgrace. So what he's doing here, God gives us a sneak peek into the consequences of choosing a life apart from him and what happens to those who are wicked. He doesn't want us to take matters into our own hands. Instead, he wants us to see what the natural consequences to a life apart from him are and to trust to bring in him to bring justice in his time, which means we, God desires us to be contemplating our destination contemplating our destination. He wants us to think about what happens to the righteous and what happens to the wicked. What's the end result? What's going to occur? I mean, if we think about how we are to live and we are to follow these prohibitions, all of these questions come up in our mind. And God is saying, temporarily, they're going to seem like they're going to advance. But let me show you eternally and what's going to happen in the long run. See, we have a tendency to just to see the, the short-term advancement rather than the long-term consequence. That's going on, what God has for us. See, now I say our destination, I put our in there because I've outlined two separate kinds of life, and you're either, we are either in one or the other, not both. You're either in uh, the, the wicked or the wise. Now look at verse 33. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked. Now, first of all, we're going to look at wicked. What does it mean? 
if we live a wicked life, it means in not loving our neighbor. Basically, that's what's illustrating all of this. Because if we really love God, we're going to love our neighbor. If we are wicked, then we will find ourselves cursed. Cursed. Now, this is the most emphatic rejection by authority that there is. And indicates that there is a very serious sin that has been done against that authority. Which means that there are serious consequences. God is the one cursing all that they value and love. Life, health, fertility, family, prosperity, security. He removes his benevolent presence. Now, God being against the house of the wicked, we might see, though, that the wicked is still a beneficiary of common grace. Now, what I mean by that is this. We say, well, well, God, if you're against them, then why are they having this advancement? Well, I mean, common grace, what we mean by that is that they are beneficiaries of the things that we are all end up being blessed by. For instance, um, we have a, a, uh, an educational system that is free. I mean, outside of taxes, it's free. We are beneficiaries of that. We have hospitals. We have modern medicine. They can still be beneficiaries of that and possibly delay the consequences of their wickedness. And God's hand not being um, with them might be evident um, not as quickly. But we also see that though the wicked might be, um, is living a wicked life, they could be having their judgment prolonged by their association with someone who is righteous. Now here's what I mean by that. Say that your neighbor is a complete wicked jerk and yet you're friends with him trying to witness, him, witness the gospel and try to share Christ with him and you are friends with him that they will be a beneficiary of God's presence and power on your life. Now you can see this in different instances in scripture. You can see it with Joseph. Okay, Joseph, he's a righteous man. Potiphar, not a righteous guy. And Potiphar becomes a beneficiary of what Joseph is doing. We see that also with his jailer. He goes to jail And yet, the jailer is a beneficiary of Joseph's um, integrity and God's blessing on his life. You also see this worked out in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where an unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse, as are the children because of the presence of a believer there. But overall and generally, even though that can be by association, most of the time the wicked will be suffering the consequences for their action more often than not. Remember, Proverbs are not promises that they are general truths in life situations that are going on. The wicked are cursed, but the cool thing about that is that Christ came to take that curse away by becoming a curse himself. So we must read the Old Testament in light of the New and understanding that Christ himself took the, the curses of those who break the law by becoming a curse himself and then giving us his righteousness. As we see in Galatians chapter 4, verse 12, and I'll just read this for you. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Live by the law. But Christ redeemed us, bought us back from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed, cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now what he's saying is, is that Christ came to take our curse, the curse of broken the law generally, especially that affected within Genesis 3, of which the curse that we can see in this Proverbs passage would be kind of a product of that. It's a greater emphasis curse that Christ came to take the curse upon himself and set us free from that. 
that he would take that upon himself that we might be saved. Now notice verse 34. Toward the scorners, he is scornful. Here we will find ourselves um, scorned if we continue living a wicked lifestyle. See, the word scorners can also mean mocks and is repeated to imply the principle of what is known in Latin as lex talionis, the law of retaliation, that if you take my eye out, I get to take your eye out. We're not to do that. As we, instead, we are to entrust ourselves toward God, as Psalm 18, 25 through 26 says. And he, um, says this, With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. In other words, we're not to scorn other people because we see that when scorners scorn, they will find that God is acting toward them in the same manner they're acting toward others. Does that make sense? That if, you, if someone is acting evil um, and scorning that person, they're going to find that God's acting that way toward them. That God will respond to them in kind. God will give to us exactly what we have done to others. As they tear everything down with their mouths, these scorners, so the Lord will tear them down with his curse. As they cover others with reproach, so the Lord will cover them with shame. Now look at verse 35. But fools get disgrace. We will be disgraced. Fools will acquire disgrace or public shame. Now, this word that's used here denotes shame, public dishonor, and entails a person who is a social failure as one who is guilty of being a drunk, prostitute, defeated in war, or affliction. It's a big failure sign blurring across them. God will make sure that if you're mocking others, you'll be mocked and will look at you as a big, giant failure in the sight of all. Let's continue on. We've looked at the wicked. Now let's look at the wise because that's what all of these words are putting together. The upright, the dwelling of the righteous, the humble. This is all representative and words to be used of someone who is truly wise. All can find their fulfillment in being wise. Now we see that he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. If we are living wise lives, then we will see, we will find ourselves blessed by God. It means that God will be there generally blessing our life, health, fertility, family, and security. Again, generally. This doesn't mean we're not going to have struggles, we're not going to have trials, we're not going to have tribulations, and we're not going to suffer. But generally speaking, God's presence and His power and His peace will be evident on our life, maybe not always to us, but to those around us. God will be our defender and will ensure that our life will permeate the peace and, um, the peace and presence of Christ. Now let's continue on. Look at the next part of verse 34. We have a lot of points to get through here real quickly. But to the humble, he has gives favor. Uh, if we follow God and live wisely, then we will be favored. Here it's humble, but it's more than that. A bit different. It has two meanings. Uh, it has a spiritual deposition, disposition and external affliction are meant. The poor in view are the pious and the ethical. God will then favor those who are really struggling. They might be economically distressed and a needy neighbor or those who are economically exploited by violent mockers, but God will put their favor upon them because they will cry out to God for help and God's ear will be inclined to them. They have been taken advantage of. These are individuals who have been taken advantage of but entrusting themselves to God because they did not respond in vengeance. They remember God's word that says in Romans twelve nineteen. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now, how many of us really believe that verse? I think many of us struggle with that verse. We say, vengeance, uh, the, Vengeance is God, but I'm his instrument. 
I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And we think of all, we list all the things that have been done to us and use that as justification to do wrong to others. Case in point, David and Saul. Okay, Saul was uh, the first king within Israel, and David eventually became, obviously, the, the, the real second king in Israel's history. Now, David had reason to hate Saul. Because Saul was jealous of David. It just, I mean, David was the guy who took out Goliath. He was the sweet psalmist and harpist of Israel. Uh, Saul's daughter fell in love with David. Um, Saul's son, the heir apparent to the throne, Jonathan, was David's best buddy. And he catered to David. And yet he was jealous of David. And, I mean, he is awful to David. You know, he tries to kill him several different times. I mean, I've had in-law problems. But I've never had my in-law try to kill me that I'm aware of. I mean, seriously, you might have, if you have an in-law that you'd like to kill, don't raise your hand. But we see that. I mean, he tries to um, take David's life. Not only that, he promises his daughter to David, has David marry her, and because she participates in a plot, um, an assassination plot, actually to stop an assassination plot orchestrated by her father against her husband, he then takes her, Saul does, and gives her to another man. I mean, he's an awful guy. And yet David, when he has the opportunity to kill him, won't do it. Because he says, he is the Lord's anointed. I will not touch him. I'm going to trust in God rather than take matters into my own hands. And I'm going to let God take care of this situation. I'm not going to be the one to do it. I'm not going to sacrifice my integrity to do so. How many of us could do that? That's what he's talking about here. That we might not repay evil for evil, but repay evil for good. Now, let's look at verse 35. The wise will inherit honor. Living wisely means that we will be honored. It refers to a permanent share in honor that falls upon an individual or group made available by accomplishment or inheritance. Basically, it means having the esteem of community and a sign of success from God. When people try to do you harm, you continue to do right, and God will honor you in the end. I'm reminded of a really quick story here. First pastor, uh, actually second pastor I ever worked with, name was Joel Rose. And Joel had been a pastor in Tama, Iowa, of this small church in a town of about 2,700 people. And in a small town, sports are the center of the community. And they were having this um, kind of a youth event where they were inviting all this youth and hoping to get 300 youth there to hear the gospel. They had pizza and games and skits and all this stuff. And they wanted to hear the message of Christ. And uh, or proclaim the message of Christ. But the, the volleyball team ended up making it to state, and the, the game fell on that day. So they decided, do we have it or not? They said, will anybody be there? Well, let's do it anyway. So they, sh- they have it, and 300 kids show up. Two to 300 kids show up. I can't remember the exact number. But two to 100, three, 200 to 300 kids show up. They have a pizza, have a great time of celebration. They share the gospel. They said, if you want to receive Christ, stand up. Almost the entire crowd stood up. It was this amazing movement of God. And the pastor the next day was just basking, and uh, Joel was basking in what God had done and went through Sunday. And, and he received a phone call on Sunday afternoon from the local television station in Des Moines, Iowa. 
They said, we heard about what happened at your church the other night. We want to come and interview about it. He's like, fantastic. God gets all this press and praise. Wonderful. So he cleans up his office, puts on his best suit. The, new, the, the, you know, the, the uh, reporter shows up with the camera. Uh, he sits down talking to them and exchanges some pleasantries. The lights go on. The interview starts, and the reporter says this. Is it true that you lured kids into this gym and then, uh, with pizza and then locked the door until they received the gospel of Christ and then refused to let them out? And he's flabbergasted. He's like, what? No, that's not at all what happened. Nothing like that. And that's how they ran the story all over Iowa. And they're, they're, here he was at this biggest moment of elation in the, in the, the penthouse of, of God's favor and esteem. And now he's suddenly in the outhouse. Like going, what happened? But see, God did something. The people of the community knew that's not what happened. And they, I mean, believers and unbelievers circled around him. They defended him publicly. The whole community did. And then he ended up growing in honor because of what he went through. He didn't respond in evil. He didn't respond with threats and retaliation. He entrusted himself to God and ended up being a great blessing to the people of the community. And people, uh, I mean, the church grew even more because people saw his integrity. That's letting God honor you in adverse and difficult situations. Now, None of this works if we don't apply it to our lives. We can hear it, but we have to apply it to our lives. So um, we must make sure that we are applying this admonition. I'm going to go through these points rather quickly. Applying this uh, admonition. Now, if we're to apply this to our lives, then we must make sure that we are seeing things differently. What I mean by that is this. Don't listen or look at it from the world's perspective. You're going to have friends. You're going to have family members. They might even be believers and attend church. And they're going to give you counsel that is completely opposite of God's word. I have seen it. I have heard it. Because people have a tendency when the tough gets situation comes, they suddenly look at things a lot differently and they cast aside God's word. We have to see things the way that God wants us to see them and walk by faith, not by sight. That requires us then looking at things differently, looking at it through the lens and word of God not our experience or the experience of others. Secondly, to do that requires obeying thoughtfully. Obeying thoughtfully. You know, we talk about blind faith. We hear that concept a lot, but it's, that's not what God calls us to. It's not blind faith. But He calls us to obey by using our minds, of thinking things through, of looking at the Word of God, of praying, and of uh, seeking godly counsel, letting the Word of God be our final arbiter of what is true. So obeying thoughtfully. And then now, to be obeying thoughtfully requires us sacrificing willingly. Sacrificing willingly, of casting aside our rights. See, we don't try to assert all of our, our rights all the time. In America, we're all about rights. I know my rights. But the rights of a child of God trumps the rights of an American citizen. And what God calls us to do is does not depend on what our Constitution says. We must obey God rather than men, sacrificing willingly. That doesn't mean we don't take advantage of that. We see Paul doing that at times, but not all the time. So we see that we are to sacrifice willingly, as it says in Proverbs 25, If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink, for you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Willing to give so that God will reward. God sees, not men. Lastly, we're to make sure that we're also giving generously. Giving generously to our neighbor, as Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42 says, You have heard that it was said, an eye, an eye, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. 
But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn him to the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give generously. Give generously. Just as the good Samaritan was a good neighbor, giving to the man that was in need, even though he was different ethnically and religiously, he saw someone in need and took care of that need despite racial and religious differences. And even though it was at a tremendous cost to himself, he did it. We give knowing that we're giving to God. Just as Jesus showed us in Matthew chapter 25, that we are to give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, clothing to the naked. We will visit the prisoner and take in the stranger, doing and showing the love of Christ by providing for the least of these, doing it for Jesus. So there we have it, how to be a good neighbor, following God's prohibitions and his admonitions, showing our love for God by loving our neighbors. But the first step is obviously you have to know God. You have to trust in Christ yourself. And after you know Christ, you're to grow with Christ and with other believers. And then you're to go in the name of Christ to make his name known. So know God. Do you know him? Have you trusted in him? I'm not just saying knowing about him, but knowing him personally. Receiving him as Lord and Savior of your life. So it's knowing God, growing with God and with other believers, meaning get plugged in, getting discipled, growing in this wonderful adventure that we call faith and a walk with Christ whether it's in a small group that we have that will be starting up in the fall or in one of our, our equipping you classes that we have on Sunday nights starting up in the fall. So we're, we're knowing God, we're growing with God, and we're to go in the name of Christ to make his name known in all of the unreached places of the world wherever God has us. That's what God has called us to do.